Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. Such a long passage to read. Thank you very much, Abby. Such hard words. Um, which kind of just reminds us that uh, this book is uh, separated from us by language, time, and culture from the time that it was written. Now, the one thing I would like to ask you as we begin, Elon Musk recently became the, the richest person in the world. Now, if hypothetically he wrote a memoir or a biography or autobiography, of his life and how he acquired Twitter, how he started SpaceX, how he started Tesla, and how there's tips in the book on how to become rich, would that be a book that some people would be keen on buying? Yes, there's a reason why it would be the number one bestseller in the world, because a lot of people would be curious. They're like, how did he do it? How did a person from Africa become the richest person in the world. Not even from Africa, but from Pretoria, right here where we are. How did he become the richest person in the world? And and people are interested about it. They want to read about it. They want to see the advice and can they replicate it. And my argument about God's word here is the same. We should apply that same logic to the Bible. A lot of us might be asking, okay, everything Abby just read, what does it have to do with me? What does a bunch of stories that were told or that happened, uh, history that happened over 2,000 years ago, what does it have to do with me? Well, first reason I would say is if we are so passionately curious about reading the number one bestseller in the world, why wouldn't we be at least curious to read the best-selling book in the history of mankind? Ever since Gutenberg's, Gutenberg's press started and books started being printed, the Bible has been the best-selling book all the time. It became so bad that they started to take the Bible off the list because it won every time. And they basically compete for second. So the number one best-selling book right now is actually second. Because the Bible sells and prints out more than any other book in the history, even today. So wouldn't we at least be curious, what, what is in this book that makes it the best-seller of all time? What is the story in this book that has started a movement that, according to some numbers, over 3 billion people call themselves followers of this book. Wouldn't we at least be curious? Why? Because when you initially read it, you're like, but these are just stories, and I'm not 100% sure how this relates to me. And even the fact that this morning's passage is like four quite separate, different stories. It doesn't seem like there's one cohesive whole. 
So my, my goal this morning is not only to preach and edify and encourage, but also to equip a little bit, to, to help us in our own Bible study methods, to help us in our own time with the Lord, when we open God's Word, to, to have a few tips that we are confident in as we read God's Word to say, you know what, I think I can figure out what God is communicating to me. Because this is the living Word of God. This is the revelation, the means by which God has revealed himself to us as humans. Imagine this book didn't exist, and we just drifted along in this world, and wouldn't you always wonder, like, where did we come from? Like, why am I even here? Why does evil happen in the world? Like, what is going on? Why is there a big, massive, yellowish, red ball in the sky at the daytime and then like a little yellowish one at night? Like, why, why did the colors of the leaf change over the, the, the course of the year? Why are we here? There's an actual book that tells us in the same way that if you bought a new car, and with the new car, they gave you a manual on how to service it and take care of it. And you decided, you know what? I think I'm good enough with uh, my knowledge of cars. I don't care re really about reading the manual. And then you drive that car for five years, and then it totally just, the engine implodes, and the car is totally wrecked. Take it to a mechanic, and they say, like, this is, you, you can't. Like, you have to buy a new car. This thing is, can't even fix it. Wouldn't it have been wise to read the manual which told you that every 15,000 kilometers you should service it? So in order for the car to function the way the creators of that car gave a manual in order for us to know how the car should function now, to keep it functioning well for as long as possible. Now, if, if this book, best-selling book of all time, is the manual by which God has revealed himself to us and how he wants us to find true life, true joy, true happiness, wouldn't we at least be curious to know how do I understand what's in this book? We have Christians or people who call themselves Christians who have never read the book. I'm not guilt-tripping anyone here. I'm not going to say, hey, who has read it? Aren't you at least curious that people who are willing to stake their eternal destiny on a book, but they have never read it? I'll leave it at that. So, in the equipping part, I want to just give a few tips. <clears throat> so, I want to explain two quick concepts and then give a few tips. One, the first concept is that this book for the Christian is the ultimate and absolute truth in our lives by which we govern our lives. So if the Bible says we should love our neighbors, as a Christian, you take that as absolute truth and authority for your life, and you do it. We do not take as Christians, as people of the book, 
what the Bible say as, yeah, it sounds okay, but I'm not going to do it, then you're not a Christian. Or you're being in sin. You're in sin. So the Bible is the final authority for the Christian. What the Bible says is what we do. What the Bible says is by which we live by. Not in a moralistic, like, I need to tick the boxes for all the things that it says, tick the boxes, then I will be saved. It's because if you read it, you would understand that's not what it means. The whole Bible is a story about how God created this amazing planet, this amazing world. How man and woman lived under his authority and they flourished in the Garden of Eden. The, the English translation for the, the, the word Eden means lavish. So God put man and woman in a place called lavish with everything and anything you can desire that made them happy. And not only that, God was in the garden with them. He was in their presence all the time. They had a personal relationship with God. In comes the serpent. In comes the temptation. And mankind decided, I want to rebel against God because I don't actually believe that he can provide for me. I don't actually believe that what he says is good is good for me. I think I can come up with a better game plan for my life. And so many of us do that. We, we come up with a game plan for our life and we, and we are wrecked with pain and guilt and suffering and shame. You only have to read News 24. I don't know if people watch news still. Or, or on, the web, on a website new, or YouTube. Like, you don't have to watch a lot of news to see how messed up this world is. Because we have rebelled against our manufacturer, our creator. We refuse to read the manual. We refuse to live by it. But God doesn't leave us in that place of rebellion. He actually comes up with a rescue plan. And he is going to send his own son to rescue us. So that we can get back to Eden. So that we can get back into that perfect relationship with him. Where we can find true life, joy, peace and happiness. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the life. So if you are here this morning... And you're feeling like, I want a fulfilled, a fulfilled life. I want a joyful life. I want to be joyful in the fact, even in the fact that I'm going through hardships. How can I do that? My argument is, put your nose in the book. Read the best-selling book of all time. But I know a lot of you will say, it's too difficult to understand. I can't understand it. Abby just read a whole bunch of things. The names are so confusing. I don't even know who the characters are. What on earth is going on here? Two things. There are the Bible... Oh, sorry. The Bible consists of 66 different books, right? It's a compendium of a whole bunch of books that consists of different literature... Liter, lit, lit, diff, whoa! Genres, literary genres. So many times what we do is we, we read a passage where, like we read this morning, a narrative or a story, and 
we try to interpret it the way you interpret a, a, a psalm or a poem or a, a letter. And you're just like, this makes no sense. This is irrelevant for my life. But we need to play according to the rules by which the authors wrote that piece of literature. And as pastors, as preachers, we try to convey and teach and train and equip people to read the Bible for themselves and see, listen, there's a difference in the way that you read a WhatsApp message from your girlfriend and the way you read a telephone book. If you read a telephone book, it's really, you don't really care about anything except what you're looking for. Like, I need a plumber. My toilet is overflowing. Go to pee. I don't care about the book. I don't, I don't care about the, the book as a whole. It has no relevance for my life except the P section where it says plumber. Then I get the phone number or Google, you know, use Google these days. They have phone numbers there if you just. So there's a different way. But then when you're reading the WhatsApp message from your girlfriend and it's like, you know, when it's like a long one and then at the bottom in blue it says read more or read on. <laughs> it's so long. And then you click and then you read it and then you're like, but what did she mean by that? And then you reread it, and then you reread it, and then you start getting goosebumps, and then you start feeling this loving feeling, and you, because it was a different kind of literary genre than this one. Look, we can't use this strategy for this one. Just be like, ignore, 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 love. Okay, great, she loves me, great, we're good. That's, you'll miss what the intended meaning was. So this passage this morning, in order to make it easier to understand, is that there's two, kind of, uh, two types of narrative genres. Narrative is just another way of saying stories. So as Africans, we love stories. So let's just see it as there's two ways of interpreting stories, and the stories we see this morning is descriptive and prescriptive. So prescriptive is the way it sounds. When you go to the doctor, they give you a prescription, to go buy medicine. So the doctor prescribes what they think you should drink to get healthy. So it prescribes for you what you should do. So if the Bible says, love your neighbor, turn the other cheek, um, don't make any false idols, that's, that's prescribing what we should do. Then you get um, descriptive narrative stories. Descriptive. That's literally just describing what is happening. And I'm, I'm maybe going to say something that shocks you guys now, depending on what tradition or family background or belief system or ideology you come from, but not everything in the Bible should be followed. Is that, is that blasphemy? Is, are you guys with me? Not everything in the Bible should be done or followed. The Bible being God's authoritative word doesn't mean we should just do everything that's in it. Because David slept with another man's wife. Should we sleep with other people's wives? David killed Uriah. Should we kill other 
people's wives' husbands so that we can marry them. Christians in the time of the kings forsake, forsook God and sacrificed newborn babies in the valley of Gehenna to the false idol Molech. Should we do that? No, we shouldn't. Not everything in the Bible should be followed. That's why it's so important to know the difference between prescriptive and descriptive. Those are just things being described. Solomon had 700 wives. Should we all get 700 wives? No. In no way is it commended in any way. No way is it prescribed in any way. That's why it's so important to know the difference. So let's look at this story, these stories, and, and use the tools that I will now teach you in order to really understand what the Bible says. So, first what we do when we get a story like this, that we're not 100% sure what's going on, is we read, we read it in its context. We don't rip it out of its context. Because there's, there's some passages in the Bible that you can rip out of its context, and then it, it would totally say something different. There's, there's a psalm, I can't remember the psalm now, but it says there is no God. Now the atheists love that verse. They will, they will talk to and converse. If you talk to an atheist, they're like, even the Bible says there's no God. How are you worshiping a God that doesn't exist? You have to become an atheist. And then you're like, okay, but just show me the verse. You know what the actual verse says? In his heart, a fool says... There is no God. But if you rip out the, in his heart, a fool says, and you just say, there is no God, you can use that to, to mean anything. So what I'm saying is really important to know how to interpret the Bible. So first, read it within its context. And the book of Acts is really, some people call it the Acts of the Apostles. I don't think that's correct. I think it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit working through fallible people. And we'll see that today. Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, the amazing Paul. You know, Paul wrote half of the New Testament. You know who's the guy that was responsible for bringing Paul into the church? Barnabas. So we get two giants of the faith fighting with each other. Never put a leader on a pedestal because they are fallible. So the first step, I would say, is read the passage in context. The second, the second thing is observe what is being said. Just observe what is being said. Then unearth the principle that you find in that uh, passage that is being described. I hope you guys know what I mean by saying principle. A principle is basically a timeless truth. It's something that would be true a hundred years ago, ten years ago, today, a hundred years from now. So for instance, a timeless truth is the sun is hot. Do you guys agree? Like, could Abraham say the sun is hot? Could Moses say the sun is hot? Could David say the sun is hot? Can you say the sun is hot? Do you think, you know, with global warming, hundred years from now, someone will say, you know, the sun is hot. 
It stays true. It's a timeless truth. And then the, th- the fourth one is to apply the principle to your life. Don't apply the observation. Because if you apply the observation, you'll get into a whole bunch of weird, sticky situations because we are separated by time, culture, and language. So let's say, for instance, you observe that Paul goes on a missionary journey from Jerusalem to Rome on a boat. That's an observation, just a random observation. Now you try to apply that observation to your own life and say, I need to go to Jerusalem, then I need to buy a ticket for a boat, then I need to go to Rome. It's like, okay, but not a lot of people use boats anymore. Like, we mainly use airplanes these days. Like, and why should I go to Jerusalem first? Can't I just go from here? Like, there's a whole bunch of sticky things. But if I were to tell you, well, let me use this example. It's way more relevant. A principle or an observation, the closer we get to winter, the colder it gets. That's just an observation I made as I walked out of my house towards the church today. The closer we get to winter, the colder it gets. The, that's the principle. The observation is it's cold. The principle is the closer we get to winter, it gets colder. The application for me is I'm going to take off my jacket. Okay. But for some other people, it might be a different application. For another person, it might mean I'm going to keep my jacket on. But from the principle that it is cold, therefore I'm going to... No, it's cold, I'm going to put on a jacket. You know, uh, I totally lost the train of thought there. But you guys get what I'm saying. I'm going to go through each of these stories quickly, and I'm basically going to go through an observation, and then I'm going to look at a principle, and then I'm going to apply it to our lives. So that when we read the Bible for ourselves, we can look at what are we seeing, an observation, What is a timeless truth that is true 100 years from now, 100 years ago? And then how do I apply it to my own life? So the first story. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return to visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord during their first mission journey and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas wanted to take them with them, John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn or deserted from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, not just like one of those normal disagreements. It's a sharp disagreement. Just shows you like two giants of the faith can also be sinful, you know. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So what do we observe? 
Let me run through some observations. Paul had a real concern for those people who had came, come to Christ during his first missionary journey. Paul thought it was a bad idea to bring someone as part of the team who had deserted them in the past. God seems to have used conflict between two Christian brothers to create two mission teams who will now reach two different areas. Paul depended on the guidance of his sending church, all the trusted uh, believers. And then it doesn't seem that Barnabas and Mark were sent out with the same blessing that uh, Paul and Silas was. Those are just observations. Now, what are the principles that we learn from those observations? Well, as believers, we should have a concern for people that we have reached out to or invested in in the past. This might be a, a child that was in your Sunday school class. This might be uh, a Christian that you shared, a, a person you shared the gospel with uh, uh, at university, uh, and you haven't seen them in 10 years, and now you're like, I wonder what's happening with so-and-so. Like, we should have a concern for people that we have personally invested in in the past. Another timeless truth, even Christians sin. Godly Christians sin. So if you're sitting here, be like, oh no, Christians don't sin. You are badly mistaken. We definitely sin. And that sin can lead to separation. That's why sometimes you see there's so many different churches. You know, there's different churches, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, Episcopalian. You, get, you know, you get so many different churches, which in essence were people that disagreed. You know, an Anglican church will say, I want to throw water on a baby. And then a Baptist church will say, like, we're only going to throw water on them until they decide to follow Jesus. And then they say, you know what, I, th I think you do your church and I do my church. That's not always, I know we view it sometimes as a bad thing. Oh, why can't all the Christians just be in the same church together? But I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. Because we are all individuals and we have different beliefs, different convictions. So as we live out our own convictions, some of us might be, based on a conviction, drawn to go to a church plant where there's so many opportunities and it's vibey and everyone knows each other. It's small. But someone else might be like, I want to go to a mega church where there's 7,000 people. Right? Wrong? No. It's a preference. So God in his sovereignty creates, even, even with sin, God then allows more people to be reached. Because imagine if all the churches in the whole world decided to only baptize little babies. What, would it, what about people who don't think babies should be baptized? Where are they going to go to church? But now there's another option, you know. We see that Paul sought out the guidance of the elders in the church who eventually sends them out with their blessing. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. 
So how do we apply this to our lives? <clears throat> well, who has God placed in your life that you have a concern for the eternal destiny of their soul? Should you perhaps WhatsApp them, call them, go for a one-on-one, -on -one, go for coffee, invite them to your house? See, those are all various applications to the same principle that we should show concern for those people that we have reached out to uh, in the past. <clears throat> Another application is do not give up on people. The great Paul wrote more than half of the New Testament, thought it was unwise to take John Mark on a mission journey with him and Barnabas. In essence, he's like, you know what, John, I don't want you part of this team. Um, you deserted us in the past, and I just don't think it's a good idea. You, I don't know if you're going to desert us again. And they split up. A few decades later, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4.11, this is just before he's going to be executed. He says, Luke alone is with me, 2 Timothy 4.11. Luke alone is with me. Please send Mark and bring him with you to me, for he is useful for me in ministry. Do you guys know who wrote the Gospel of Mark? The deserter. The guy who deserted them. So God clearly worked in and through him over time. And maybe Paul was very uh, not so patient. He was like, you know what? He's more like that tough love kind of guy. And they're like, no, you're not coming with us. Whereas Barnabas was more, you know what Barnabas means? It means sons of, son of encouragement. Barnabas was more like, you know, I'll take him under my wing. He's like, yeah, he messed up. It's fine. I'll take him under my wing. And clearly we see how God has used him in the future. So don't give up on people. The second story we saw how as Paul... So, as we see, Barnabas and Mark's story isn't told anymore, and the, the author kind of starts focusing on the story of Paul. Luke's, Luke joins Paul and Silas, and um, that's why we have more information of Paul's journey and his missionary journey. They eventually run into a guy called Timothy, who's extremely young, it says, they came to Derby and Lystra. A disciple was then named Timothy, son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, uh, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers in Lystra and Iconium. And then I'm going to just skip over and basically say, Paul decided to make him part of his team. And part of his team, they, they kept on going and share the gospel in different uh, cities. <clears throat> the observation I make from that text is that Paul chose to work in teams. Even Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. Now, if God himself thinks it's a good idea for you to share the gospel with someone in a team, we should probably take that seriously. Now, I'm not saying that you can never learn to build a relationship with someone, earn their trust, Read the Bible one-on-one -on -one with them. Share your testimony. Share your faith story. Share the gospel with them. 
I'm not saying you can't do it by yourself. But it is harder by yourself. And it's better to have encouragement and edification uh, and support in a team. So Paul chose a team. So it's Paul, Silas, Luke, and this new guy, Timothy. And this new guy <clears throat> is so encouraging. Uh, Paul actually writes two letters to him, one and first and second Timothy. And his actions are known in two different cities. And he's not a full-time gospel minister. He's just a normal guy. He's young, normal guy. And it says that he was spoken of well by the Christians in two different cities. I'm seeing a lot of potential right there. And Paul is also seeing that. He's like, you know what? We need this guy on our team. So Paul and everyone in those two cities clearly saw that what Timothy did and what he said was in line with the Bible and the gospel. What Paul saw was three A's. If you want to make notes, these three A's might be helpful. If ever you don't know what to do, and you don't know what the calling of God is for your life, let's say, for instance, you're a student, and you don't even know what you're studying. You're just studying something because your parents told you. Maybe you are working for a company and you're getting sick and tired of being in middle management. You want to go off and start your own company. And there's a whole bunch of things. Maybe you want to become a parent, but you're not sure because you don't exactly like children. But there's a whole bunch of things that we need to make decisions on. We need to ask ourselves, what is God's calling? What does God want us to do? So the cool thing here is we see that Paul saw... Affinity, ability, and affirmation in Timothy. Affinity, ability, and affirmation. Affinity is basically passion. He has a passion to share the gospel with those who are lost. Ability, he clearly did it well to the point where everyone's like, wow, he's a very good minister. And then there's affirmation. Other people said, yeah, he's, he's, he's good. He's faithful. So in the same way, if we are trying to make decisions, we need to... Look at whether we actually have the passion for it, whether we actually have the ability, and whether other people are saying it's a good idea. So let's say, for instance, you want to start a private practice, or you want to start a private school. You might not have the abilities to do any of that. You know? And you might have the passion. You're like, the school system in Pretoria sucks. I need to make a new school. The passion is there, and you have no ability to do it in any way, and other people are actually telling you, like, you know, I, I don't, I mean, she's, maybe if you're part of a team that does it together, but I don't think you should spear that up. Like, I, I don't think so. So those are helpful things to look at when you want to do something. Passion, so affinity, ability, and affirmation from other people. So the application here is try and share the gospel in a team.
join a missional community. In this church, we have three discipleship networks, uh, structures. We have Sunday gathering, which we are all at now, where we are being discipled and trained and taught up. Then we have missional communities where we invite some of the people that we are reaching out to in a non-threatening environment. Because some people, you invite them to church, and they might have decades of baggage with church, with conflict in church, with church splits, with hypocrites, with drama, with pain. So you might just have like a good heart and be like, hey, do you want to come to church with me on Sunday? And for them, it's like warning bells. It's like, I want nothing to, I like hanging out with you. You're a cool guy. You're a cool girl. Like, I, I love what you're about. Your life is clearly different. There's some joy in your life that's, that I don't see in other people. But as soon as you said the C word, come to church with me, they basically wrote you off. They're like, oh, because now they're applying all the drama from the past onto you. Like, okay, you're that hypocrite also. That's why we've created some, what, is something, what is called missional community, where we invite people into a non-threatening environment where they can basically see, hey, Christians are just normal people. Like, not all Christians are hypocrites. But all Christians struggle with sin. Not all Christians are malicious. And that's another concept we have to really get our heads around. In, in systematic theology, there's this concept of the visible church versus the invisible church. What do we see here, gathering together today, is the visible church. We are all here gathering together in a church. But amongst us is the invisible church. That's people who actually follow Jesus Christ, which implies that in each and every church we find all over the globe, there are people who don't follow Jesus. And praise God that they even came into this setting to hear God's word preached, to hear the good news of the gospel, to hear that there can be forgiveness from, from past sins, relief of shame and guilt, that Jesus has taken that on himself for you. And I pray that if you are one of those, that you would hear the good news of the gospel and accept him as your Lord and Savior. I don't want us as a church to sit here thinking that all of us are Christians. We aren't. Every single church you go to, there will be people who are not Christians. That's why missional community is such a great place. Invite people who are, you are reaching out to into a place of safety and trust. And maybe there's also something fun like a braai or bounce, trampolines, I don't know, swimming pool. And you can just hang out and build relationships. And, and hopefully they can see the love of Jesus in your life. You know? We clearly see that Timothy was visibly seen as a gospel minister. Are you? I know I've heard of the story of um, an executive in PE, which is now Kubeja. 
I say it right? Did I get close? Okay. Let's just say, assume I got it right. Pobecha. And um, he worked for the same company for many years. And he came in early. He left late. Whenever anyone asked for help, he was there to help. He's really one of those amazing colleagues. And he got a, a job opportunity in Joburg in Santon. And he took it, so the, 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 the company in PE decided to throw him a, a going-away party. And there were quite a few people, but two, two colleagues specifically, you know, were always baffled by the fact that he was such a great guy, such an amazing worker, such a kind person. And they, they plucked up the courage to eventually ask him at his farewell party, they asked him, do you know what they asked him? Are you Hindu? So what is the lesson? You can be a great person. That doesn't mean you're a Christian. But my advice for you is that the same with Timothy, even, in his, even though his actions were famous for loving and serving people, he clearly spoke to the point that people knew he was a Christian. So we cannot just be Christians in deed. We need to be Christians in word and deed. We need to show the gospel and say the gospel. You can't do one without the other. Okay, now I'm just going to fast forward because I feel like We've gone too long on that. The third story, I'm going to summarize. The Macedonian call. Paul and his new team get on a boat. They decide, I'm going to go here. And the Holy Spirit says, no. Paul and his team decide, okay, then we're going to go here. Holy Spirit says, no. And Paul and his team's like, uh, what are we supposed to do then? And then they get a vision. Angel of the Lord comes and says, there's a Macedonian man crying out for help, saying, please come help us. Come to Macedonia. Please come help us. And God made it very clear. So then they go to Macedonia, and they plant a church there. Now, what does that mean for us? You know, a lot of times... We are crippled by decisions. We don't know what to do. But I, wrote, I read this amazing little book by Kevin DeYoung. If you want to read it, I should probably say you should read it. But the whole thesis of the book is in the title. It's called Just Do Something. It speaks to a whole generation that is so crippled by the fact that they're waiting for God to show them in the sky what they should do with their lives. Should I go to Cape Town? Should I become a teacher? Should I go into full-time ministry? Should I become a missionary? Should I become an accountant? For which accounting firm should I work? I have four offers from four different companies. Which one should I take? I don't know. So a whole generation crippled by decisions. And in this book, Kevin the Young basically says, just do something. Because in the doing something, 
God tends to open and close doors. The same way he does with Paul and his team. Paul and his team said, we're going here. God closed the doors. They're like, okay, good. Then we're going to go here. Close the doors. And the, the door opened here. So sometimes we just need to do something and God will make it clear. You know, <clears throat> there's about 200 to 300,000 full-time gospel missionaries all over the world right now. And there could be millions. There could be millions. But so many people feel like this real calling on their life to go share the gospel with people in the Middle East. Go share the gospel with people in the 1040 window. Go share the gospel with people in Kazakhstan. But they say, I'm just going to wait until the, the Lord confirms my calling. I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to wait. Millions of them never go. Never. So the advice is, if you feel that there's a call on your life to go be a missionary somewhere, just do it. Just go. Because it is better for a million missionaries to go to the 1040 window and for 40% of them to realize, actually, I had bad motives. Actually, I just wanted fame. Actually, this was a bad idea. I'm going to go back. But if everyone, all of those just were like, okay, we're just going to wait for some, some like real confirmation here, just some real confirmation. Almost no one actually make it. There's billions of people who don't have any access to a church, a Christian, or a Bible, especially in the 1040 window. And there's a whole bunch of people in, in the, the reached world who's like, I'm just waiting for that, I'm just waiting for that, that, that confirmation, that confirmation. It's like, just do it. I think God will be honored if you want to go share the gospel with someone in another country. And then you get there and you realize, well, this was a mistake. I can share from my own life. I started studying engineering because I wanted to be rich. Bad idea. Bad motives. So I quit. Then my very first job, I took because of the salary. Bad idea again. We need to look at four different steps. So if you want to take notes. So besides the ability, affinity, uh, and the affirmation, here's four more tips for when you don't know where your calling is. Is what you want to do in harmony with the Bible? So, for instance, I want to start an abortion clinic to kill babies. It's not in the Bible. It's murder. Don't do that. That's not something you should do. Okay. Is what you want to do in harmony with what is in the Bible? Okay. First one. Second one. Ask mature Christians for advice. Third one. Check your motives. This is one thing I didn't do. I didn't do that for studying engineering. I also didn't do it in my first job. I literally just did it for all the wrong reasons. Check your motives. How do you check your motives? You ask the big why question. Why do I want to study engineering? 
If I just asked that, then I wouldn't have gone through the whole mess of having to go to university and then failing and then like having to change. It's a whole, just a whole mess. Just ask the why questions. Ask the why questions. And then the fourth one is pray for God to open and close doors as you just do something. So just do something and pray for God to open and close doors. Who knows? Maybe the doors are just flung open, but because you never tried, you're like, God wants to use you and do something amazing in your life. And there's open doors somewhere for you, but if we don't do something, we're not going to see those open doors. And then the final story, we hear this amazing story of a lady from Thyatira who does business in Philippi come to know Jesus through the preaching of Paul. I love this story because not only when she heard the gospel preached by Paul, not only did she get saved, but because she's so loaded and so rich, all her servants, her household, is there with her, you know, carrying her, you know, blowing a a leaf on her, carrying her water for her. So what we see is a wealthy businesswoman. Now, I want to undo any sort of stereotype that women can't be businesswomen. Because in the Bible, we see this lady, Lydia, is not just a normal businesswoman. She's very successful to the point where she has franchises in different cities. How many of us are running companies with franchises in different cities? But if you can, and you have the ability, and you have the passion, go for it. Yes, things might change a little bit if there's no mention of a husband. There's no mention of children. The word household years refers to slaves and servants. So, yes, maybe her life will change when there's babies, when there's um, a, a husband, when there's a family structure. The business maybe will, the business model might look different. But I want to encourage people to say, look, just because you're a woman doesn't mean you can't be a CEO of a company. Some people might disagree with me, and that's okay. But I see it in the Bible. If you want to read Proverbs 31, that's another brilliant businesswoman right there. Do it. Just do it. And the cool thing is not only does she accept the gospel and become a follower of Jesus, she gets baptized right there and then, and her whole household, all her servants get baptized as well. And then she urges Paul and his whole team to come live in her house with her to make her house the mission base for their missions operation to the church, uh, to the city in Philippi. For me, that is clear evidence that when people are saved and their lives are totally transformed and all of a sudden they have a desire to, to love Jesus and serve other people, it's so clear here as we see in Lydia's life. May we become those sort of people. 
there is sometimes a tendency for us to to go to no actually I'm just going to leave that out the Holy Spirit is speaking the Holy Spirit is saying you're done now Lord Jesus we pray that as we read your Bible, your revelation of yourself to us, that it would not just be for information and knowledge, because knowledge puffs up, but that it would be all about transformation. That like Timothy and Lydia, and later on John Mark, that there would be such evidence of the love of God in our lives towards other people. That you would fill us with your spirit as we see the acts of the Holy Spirit through fallible people. We know that we are sinful. We are fallible. And we are so grateful that you are willing to use us to advance your kingdom. We pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would continue or if we haven't done it, to love other people the way you have loved us. Thank you for this amazing message of the gospel. Thank you that you have saved us from our sin, our shame, our guilt. Thank you that you have opened your arms and accepted us as part of your family. Thank you that you came up with this rescue plan to to bring us back to to lavish, bring us back to the Garden of Eden, bring us back to where we were in perfect unity and harmony with you. And we thank you for this book of Acts. We thank you to see how through your spirit and fallible people, you created a movement. You created the church, the universal global church to the fact, to the point where billions of people worship you today. I pray that you would continue to use us and help us to overcome any fear or doubt or confusion with regards to our calling, what you want us to do, how you want us to do it, who you want us to reach out to. I pray that you would just give us boldness through your spirit to just Do something. Just take the first step. I pray this for all of us here, and I pray specifically for those who are here who do not know you, who have not experienced the true love and acceptance of a father who has adopted them into, or who wants to adopt them into his family, who wants to be reconciled with them, who wants to forgive them of their sins who wants them to not only enjoy life, but have life in abundance, in, in its fullness, as Jesus says. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The thief comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. Help us to ignore the temptations of the devil. But Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. May that be the thing that we run after and seek. 
May that be the reason why we read our Bibles. May that be the reason we share with others. May that be the reason why we come to church. Because we love you. Because you first loved us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.